very special evening for you. Um, we're just going to sit here till tomorrow morning. <laughs> no, that was like Musawada, sorry. Um, <laughs> because tomorrow we're going to have a very short morning, uh, we won't have time for the usual Q&A. So what we decided to do this evening was to open up the floor for any last questions you may have about the Dharma. And uh, we, you can direct it to one of us or just leave it open and, and one of us will respond. And so um, it would be really helpful if you related to the, the question directly to your practice, to the Dharma, and uh, that would be helpful for everybody else. It would be nice if somebody who hasn't asked a question could raise their hands and just be brave enough to do that, and that would be wonderful. And if not, yeah, Martha. So I'll say a little since I've got the mic on me right now. Uh, So the question is about when something comes up in the mind, body, and say it's recognized as aversion, but maybe it's not recognized at the very beginning. Uh, But there's a sense that a defilement's coming through. I'm just kind of paraphrasing you. Is it, and you can't find the word right away, is it appropriate to study the defilements to really understand and know their names, etc., and then so you can apply that particular word to the experience? Is that close enough, Martha? Oh, because you've heard this week that people can gain insight without having studied anything at all. Uh It's true. It really is true. (laughs) Um, So we have hope. (laughs) You don't have to, in my book, you don't have to study, in my understanding, you don't have to study what all the the names of the particular defilements are. If, If you read Mahasi Seadao's writings. It's, there's like about a thousand of them that he can spell out. Uh, but when we know, you know, when something comes through in the body-mind continuum, especially the mind, of course, it comes through the mind, but sometimes it's registered in the body as well. And there is a general sense, actually, that this has to do with some, um, some manifestation of aversion, because aversion feels like a pushing away or sometimes a closing down, sometimes a turning away. 
um, it can feel harsh, it can also feel fiery. There's all kinds of manifestations of it, of course, and you kind of get the general sense, this is aversion, or this is attachment. It feels like holding, it feels like sticky, um, and many other experiences in the, uh, along that line. So you don't have to be specific about it at all. Um, and I just want to say there's a lot of times for me where there are there are several, it seems like there are several defilements together, like a multiple hindrance attack, you know, where there's a lot together. And you can't, there's not a sussing out of this is this part and that's that part. But in the moment, it, it just really, it's really understood that whatever is there is unwholesome. It's not leading to benefit. So sometimes in my practice, I would just have almost a sound of, mm, like got it, know what this is. But there doesn't have to be um, a label to it or a, a name that represents that particular experience. Uh huh. Then there's a sense of release. Mm-hmm. That can be felt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you probably are <laughs> looking for, you know, really nailing it, and so then there's release. So you might, there might be a word that may come up more intuitively for you. Mm-hmm. I I wouldn't try to split hairs with anything, though. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, I have a question about karma, and um, I know that difficulties that we face in life are due to causes and conditions and that's the karma and I'm wondering if it that is something that's set in stone or if it's something that we can influence and like if we have sort of like bad karma is it because we've done something to deserve mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to give this to Mark. <laughs> it's, it's a really good question. <laughs> Makes you wonder what Kamala's karma is right now. <laughs> I trust you. That's my karma. I trust Deb too, but... <laughs> and dance. There's a, I don't know if we, anybody in the group uh, mentioned this beautiful simile from the Buddha... I might have in one of my talks, but it, it certainly bears repeating because it gives a lot of hope. For one thing, uh, we know that however this moment is, it has to be coming from somewhere, right? The way this particular mind is manifesting, you know, the kind of qualities. And then more generally, the circumstances that are presenting themselves, the people were around. So what life tells us, we may not understand why this is arising, and I think the Buddha would probably recommend not trying to figure out why the particular conditions of our mind and the particular conditions of our circumstances, why they're arising, because it can't 
we, we don't have that mind that can understand how it all came to be. But what our experience tells us is that things are lawful. So even though we don't know all of the ins and outs of the lawfulness of why it is this way right now, we know that this moment, the conditions of my life in this moment, that they're arising lawfully. And we can trust that. And we understand that how my mind, how the mind is relating to the moment is setting in motion the future. Because the future is unfolding from this plus the way the mind is knowing this. The attitude of mind, the wisdom in the mind, or the absence of wisdom in the mind. That's setting in motion what's to come, right? Now the simile that I find really useful is, so whatever's been set in motion in the past, and it, I don't think it's necessarily helpful to say I did it, but it is helpful to say whatever's going to arise is lawful, it's not a mistake. So in a sense, it belongs in this lawful universe, that it's this temperature today, or that there's this sadness in my heart, or there's this joy in my heart, that it's lawful. And the simile is, has to do with salt. Maybe I did say that on the retreat, that if you put a cup of salt in a very small container of water, it's going to make that container of water really salty. But if you put a cup of salt in Lake Superior, it's not going to make it salty at all. You know, the Buddha used the Ganges River, not Lake Superior. But the, you know the idea. And so the simile is about the mind, the amount of space, wisdom, understanding, compassion in the mind. And when negative karma, unpleasant circumstances arise for a mind that is wise, it's not going to make, it's not going to um, make an, a serious imprint on that mind. That mind will know how to receive that particular circumstance and not get caught in aversion, greed, or attachment, and just keep continuing with mindful awareness, right? Because that mind knows how to be with whatever shows up. But a mind that hasn't cultivated mindfulness is really susceptible when some difficult experience arises to be thrown off balance into a state of heavy-duty aversion or greed, which then affects choices, which then sets in motion future karmic results, because now that person might be really unskillful, having been thrown off by what arose in their life. So the past is done. And so whatever's going to show up because we're part of this culture or somehow it's related to our own actions earlier in life, but whatever's going to show up, in a way, that stuff's going to show up. But what's still at play is what kind of mind is going to meet what shows up in our life, a mind with a lot of wisdom and a lot of stability, or a mind without much stability and without much wisdom, taking everything personally. Right? And that we can do a lot with. And I'll just relay another story because it's so provocative to me at least. There's a great book, by the way, for those of you who are kind of like digging into the tradition, the sort of Pali tradition, these earlier, earliest recorded teachings of the Buddha. There's a book that Bhikkhu Bodhi and another person put together called The Great Disciples of the Buddha. And it's just 
little biographies of some of the early nuns and early lay women, early monks and early lay men at the time of the Buddha and just searching through the suttas and commentaries to find any stories related to them and then they sort of patch together some biography of the important characters. And um, uh, the, one of the chief disciples of the Buddha, Moggallana, so there's the Buddha and then Sariputta and then Moggallana, the two chief disciples. And Moggallana had a lot of concentration power, psychic abilities, besides being fully a fully awake person. But uh, at some point, you know, as the story goes, there was some uh, karma that needed to come to fruition in his life. And so near uh, the end of his life, when he was an older person, um, some, I'm trying to remember all the details, but basically he was beaten several times um, brutally before he finally died. And now the sense of that is that in that mind that had uprooted the tendencies toward greed, anger, and delusion, that that mind didn't get caught in fear, didn't get caught in hate, or any of those constricted negative states of mind. But the karma still arose. But at least we want to, as we understand the tradition and understand, you know, not from our own experience, but the mind of an awakened person, that that mind wasn't burdened by those terribly painful, or it's still painful, but the mind not personalizing the pain. So there's going to be karma, because karma isn't personal. Karma just means that intention matters. Right? And so things have been set in motion and they're going to, that motion is going to express itself one way or another in the world, in our lives. And there's lots of different kind of strands of cause and effect playing out. And it's a real relief for us not to have to, you know, like you might think back of all those things we did when we were young and not so wise. And like, oh my God, it's all going to come to fruition at some point. And it can feel a little hopeless, or we can feel, well, I'm going to, and I am cultivating a mind and a heart that can actually receive the fruit of any karma, right? Because there may be cultural karma that we personally didn't set in motion, but are just part of being part of this culture or living in a particular place, right? So there's all kinds of... um, yeah, just the fruit of cause and effect that we're susceptible to as a human being. Yeah, thanks for the good question. Mm-hmm. Susan. I said that? 
Oh, okay. Uh, so me saying something about the Indian tale, Siddhartha. You know, um, I can't remember the exact details of why I would suggest that to you, but this is what went through my own mind heart when I read that when I was very young. What impressed me about that, and I've, I have a whole Dharma talk about that, it's on impermanence, was the fact that it was in the the story when he sat next to the river and there were the river was flowing and he listened he just listened to what the river was telling him it was like letting allowing nature speak to to him and so this whole opening into the impermanence of life came and that's what struck me about that. And I always remember the river and how the flowing on of the river and the many different parts that would come down through the river of life that I would have to face in, in my own life. And um, that opened me to the understanding of impermanence for the first time at, at that depth. Um, so that's what was so important to me during that time. And when we open to what the what impermanence really means it also feeds into the understanding of the unsatisfactoriness of life because which i couldn't understand very deeply at that time but as time went by i really understood it more that because of this flowing onness of life there's nothing that could be clung to at all because everything just flows through our hands like water. In fact, you know, at a, in a Buddhist funeral, they pour water and have it go through your hands to signify that we can't hold on to anything. So there is this inability to hold on to what's moving. And then also the, the fact that can't hold on to any part of this body-mind continuum that keeps flowing on and we see that as the mind awareness sees clearly and deeply into the various processes that are happening in this mind-body continuum. So there's an ever-deepening understanding of how things are not only impermanent but how that impermanence feeds into the nature of unsatisfactoriness because can't hold on to anything that's moving and changing 
and also the fact that even when there is awareness about all the different processes that are seen, felt, experienced in the body-mind, every one of those processes are always moving. So it really opened up to a deeper wisdom for me. Open that wisdom part, yeah. It's always the river, but always different water, yeah. Even this body mind. Hopeful. Mm-hmm. There's a hope there, that's true. That possibility for transformation. Yes. Repeat that, Deb. I've got more perspective. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm looking at my <laughs> colleagues here. <laughs> I don't want to be the only one, but we we want to hear the answer too. <laughs> Do you? I'll I'll say a little something if you say something too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he was asking about this amazing transition where these teachings have been held in the monasteries and I mean specifically the Theravada tradition, the tradition that's grounded in the Pali Canon that was based in Thailand and Burma and Sri Lanka and to some degree, Laos and Cambodia. And now it's come to the West over the last hundred years or so, a little longer. And I think the question or comment was, you know, what should we look out for? What do we need to be aware of in, I mean, we are quite literally right in the middle of a very, you know, historically speaking, a very important time where these teachings are coming. And it's, um, I mean, for me, I'm in a, uh, I teach retreats like here at uh, IMS, but I'm also mostly just in an urban setting. And in this urban setting, there's a lot of Zen meditation practice, and there's a lot of Tibetan practice in Minneapolis, and there's a lot of other wisdom streams flowing around. And then on top of this, we have the internet, and there's so much. I mean, basically, you can find all of the sacred teachings from all traditions there. So it's a really unusual time. And I guess one thought I had was, you know, one thing to look out for is um, to be confused. The mind can get confused by really good things, actually. But because the different wisdom streams, they have different ways of talking about the mind or talking about our situation as a human being. 
And they're not often parallel. They don't sort of, they're not talking about the same thing. And we can get in this place of wondering what's better, comparing mind, judging mind. And we can uh, tend to be superficial about our practice too. The good side is it will teach us, uh, I think, to be more self-reliant because uh, we are exposed to a lot. Even now when you come on a retreat at Spirit Rock, I remember Joseph saying this a long time ago. He's probably said it many times, Joseph Goldstein and the other senior teachers who've been around for a while, that any one of us maybe wouldn't do such a great job at presenting the Dhamma, but maybe four of us can do a good job at sort of giving folks a sense of what the Buddha taught and about this path. And so our job, you know, as practitioners is to have a sense of what kinds of teachings the heart naturally trusts and gravitate toward. And really, you know, after maybe some period of shopping around and then settle in. And once we've really settled into tradition, even within that tradition, we're going to get a diversity of voices. But once we've settled into tradition, a a way of practicing, of working with the mind, training the mind, then when we have some momentum, some understanding that's come from our practice, then when we get different teachings from different places, we have kind of a perspective to understand what we're hearing. You know, in relationship to what my mind has come to understand about the mind. Now I'm hearing this, and now I'm able to see what a value is, is there in that teaching. But I think there are a lot of people that kind of get pushed around, and as soon as practice gets difficult, go looking for a different version of spiritual practice. And when that gets difficult, looking for a different version, a different you know, approach. And so there, there is a shadow of superficiality. And that combined with what uh, Kamala was talking about earlier today about um, mindfulness and some of these teachings entering the world of commerce now. And I'm not judging that because I don't, you know, it's not about good or bad. It's just there are, there are consequences when um, mindfulness and these ancient and and really transformational teachings become part of the marketplace. I don't think it can be avoided. It's already happening. But it's just, that is unknown. Like what the long-term consequences of that will be, I don't really know. One of the things to remind you about is, uh, remember the story about the Kalamas when when this group of people from the little town of Kesaputa asked the Buddha, what, what should we believe? There are so many things being offered. And basically, the Buddha said, see for yourself, um, try for yourself, what leads to benefit, what leads to release, what leads to liberation, what leads to suffering. And align yourself with that which leads to liberation. But we have to try for ourselves first. There's a there's a way that we can look at our understanding of the Dharma in a bigger picture as there's a breadth of Dharma, uh, various ways that Dharma is, is expressed. And as Mark was saying, uh, we can understand that breadth in a way where 
we have enough space in our minds, our minds are big enough to say, oh, I can see how that applies to what I know about my own practice. And then there's a depth of practice where we may be able to be open to all of the different ways that the Dharma is presented, uh, but at the same time, we have we have one practice that we do and we kind of go to the depth of that practice and we understand very depthfully. And from the depth, we'll have a more open heart for, for the breadth of what's happening. There's an old story that I've heard here on the stage for a, a long time where an old Zen master, a very great Zen master, was here and talking to a kind of a, um, a Theravadin master, you know, and uh, he was very humble mm-hmm. and very quiet. And um, the Zen master said to the Theravadin Sayadaw or Achan, what is this? <laughs> what is this? And the, the Theravadin master just wondered and he turned around and he said to the his interpreter, doesn't he know what an, an orange is? You know, it was like he really didn't get where he was coming from. <laughs> um, but that Theravadan master was very profound in his under, his own depth of understanding of Anicca Dukkha Nata. So, hmm. it's all kinds of ways it's presented. <laughs> Way back there. Yeah, yeah. Deb, I think you can do that one. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I know about this one. (laughs) So, working with pain, and uh, that it's really challenging. Is there anybody? Is there anybody? (laughs) Is there anybody that hasn't discovered this on this retreat? (laughs) Please raise your hand. (laughs) Yeah, it's really challenging working with pain. Pain is a great teacher, and it brings up all sorts of reactions in the mind, and it's unpleasant. So the practice is just to be willing to learn about pain, to be willing to uh, be intimate with it, to be willing to listen to what it has to teach us, and to see what the reactions are in the mind. And it's, um, you know, it's going to be messy working with pain. It's that we really have to dance with pain, especially if it's something that comes up a lot for us, if it's chronic pain. So we approach it very gently. We approach it with a lot of compassion, um, just really lowering the bar <laughs> when there's a lot of pain present. So not to, to have some agenda that we need to be continuously present with every you know, nuance of the painful feeling, but just notice what we can. Notice what is clear about it. So if it's just you know, the, the physical sensations, a few here and there that we can pick up on to just be with that. Um, if we can pick up on the aversion in the mind, if that's clear, then just to notice that. And just to, to take those moments when it is clear, to see what we can see. And um, over time, we might find the relationship to it evolves, but we need to be really honest with ourselves about, uh, this is where I am with it now. You know, we can't, uh, as Mark was saying, we can't jump over the first noble truth. <laughs> we can't play leapfrog with the first noble truth uh, until we really open to, okay, this is the situation, this is the truth of what's happening. Then we can't get to a place of being able to see why it's happening. 
and arrive at a place where we can maybe let go and find a different relationship to it. So, you know, so many times people ask about pain and what can I do with pain and how can I work with pain and how can I make it okay, basically. But really, pain is just a fact of life. Dukkha, dukkha. <laughs> it's there. Mm. I never saw that hand up before, right, right there in the white shirt, right? I have two questions. One is, what is a Zen master picture on what? I can answer that right now. I don't know. <laughs> what, what would the Zen master think the orange was? Yeah, sorry. Mm-hmm. And I have that ice cream knowing that it's only a temporary joy, mm-hmm. but that's okay. Mm-hmm. Is that a defilement? Or if somebody is calling me on the phone and I, I know that I can't talk to them right now, I don't want to talk to them right now, they don't pick up, is that a burden? And how does this relate to kind of our lives and our karmic stream? Mm-hmm. So the first question, I, I can take that, but Vance, think about this a little bit. Maybe you'll have an addendum to what I'm saying. Okay, yeah. So, <laughs> um, so the first question has to do with ice cream. And if there's wanting of ice cream, and we, you're asking about defilements. Is every, you know, greed, hatred, and delusion, are they all defilements? Um, yeah. They are. Um, and there's different iterations of every one of them. But uh, depending on how it, what's encased in, what the intention is, how strong the intention is behind it, whether it's verbalized or in behavior, it can become stronger. It can have a stronger karmic impa- impact. So, for example, wanting ice cream, not, not very big impact, you know, and you... You, there's wanting arising for this ice cream that's really not going to harm anyone, right? I mean, you may put on a pound or something like that, but little. That's not very much that harm that it's doing. But what, what's harmful there is that um, it's, you're feeding the habit of, of that wanting mind. So that can become like those little movements and, and, and little um, indentions that you put in like the, the mind, you know, the, the cow pass of the mind so that when any wanting comes up, it can fall right there. And it just is followed blindly instead of having any discernment about is this... Is this going to be uh, harmful to me or to others or not? Or even the harmfulness of, is this leading to more and more of a habit pattern? So just in terms, it's a very simple question, really, and, you know, but it has profound 
implications too because for example in my own life when there's there is a strong wanting for something or even a light wanting for something and I'll I will on purpose not fulfill that wanting because I don't want to feed the habit pattern of wanting. And it's not because I can't have that thing or that ice cream, but it's because I'm really training in not making that habit pattern stronger and stronger and stronger. So that's mostly the danger of, of that particular uh, example that you gave. What was the other one? Mm-hmm. That could bring up the hatred for the reason. Mm-hmm. And I guess, um, so the question about the ice cream, I'm just, I'm just thinking that's a simple thing, but does it lead to like an ascetic path? Yeah. So, Vance, do you have anything to say about that? Sorry about that. That's been a theme of the retreat. It's a noisy microphone early in the morning. Um, I, I just had one thing that came to mind. It, it may not be too significant, but um, I was actually thinking about mealtime at Shui Yu Min Center. Um, and how, you know, there'd be times I'd go into the hall, and especially because I was, you know, doing eight precepts or, or, or more when I was ordained, uh, there wasn't the evening meal. And what that would result in is at times, you know, going into the meal hall at lunch, there would just be kind of a lot of fear around getting enough. And then I'd, you know, fill up my plate and just the craving would be kind of, it would be overrunning the mind. And, you know, I'd just be leaning over my, my platter and just totally lost in, you know, all the, the food and you know, a little self-conscious every now and then, but then going back to the, you know, the greed running its course. And you know, the, the the end result was, you know, okay, I had eaten the food, right? And the food was in my belly and then, you know, trying to be mindful of, you know, the next experience. Um, but it was insightful when I began to actually listen to this chant that was done before each meal. And some of you may have heard this, but there was a part of the chant that alludes to uh, eating this meal not for sensual pleasure, but to continue to cultivate the mind and reap the fruits of the practice. And it was really interesting when that could kind of take hold in the mind and be the motivation for the exact same action, so to speak. That no longer was it, I was still eating the meal and filling up the belly, but no longer was it craving that was actually running the show, right? It was actually a deeper, a deeper intention that really seemed to kind of open up different avenues within that same activity when it came to the mind. And so, yeah, just that was somewhat illuminating. Yeah. Yeah. So when we're out in the world, thank you, Vance. That was good. Yeah. So when we're out in the world and. (laughs) (laughs) But. We are bombarded with, uh, with temptations. I mean, there's even 
announcements that say, that say crave more or you know <laughs> all kinds of ways that things are labeled to to draw us to towards it and to want it and so it's really interesting to be in the world and to see what's coming up what's coming up in the mind in relationship to whatever that is out there so for example going going into a shopping center for me it's really interesting for me to watch my mind of what what it contacts because the contact can bring a pleasant or unpleasant coming with it is an unpleasant or a pleasant feeling and then that will lead to either wanting or aversion so i can it's interesting to watch the mind do that as i go you know down where i live you know you can look both ways and see pretty things in the display cases and i can just watch the mind be attracted to something and it'll be sometimes it's just seeing something a shape and a form and a color and then sometimes it sees like wow that's really nice and it you know i want to go in there and look and sometimes i do and then I can see can watch how the wanting is so so strong to buy that thing or to get that thing and to take it home and the so the experiment to be out there in the world and see all this happening can be a really interesting experiment um and how many things have I just followed you know and then I take it home I buy it and I take it home and I think I don't need this you know so just another car trip to town to return it you know <laughs> so let it be an interesting investigation for you an interesting to to see what the mind does in relationship to all kinds of contact in the world seeing smelling touching feeling Yeah. Well, Deb is right in the middle of this, so with her children. So I'll let her answer. I was just thinking the same thing as Kamala was um, as Kamala was speaking. It's been a long time since I've had the luxury of going for a a pleasurable shopping trip. <laughs> You know, usually we're hitting the box store and we've got to get school supplies or whatever we've got to get. And um, I've taken great comfort over the years in the teaching that it's far better to act unskillfully knowingly than unknowingly. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, when we look, when we look in our experience, as Mark was saying, I think the effect on the mind of acting out our greed, hatred, and delusion and seeing ourselves doing it. The effect on the mind of that is dramatically different than we're ju- when we're just in that place of you know, knee-jerk reactions, just kind of acting out without even realizing it. So you know, we go through the, through the day, as Kamala was just saying, and we, we see what the mind is doing. Once we know what it's up to, then the whole equation has changed. Like there's, there's some stories about the Buddha and the, and the, old, uh, and the Pali Canon where 
Mara, you know, is kind of this demonic figure, but he's really just the embodiment of all of our greed, hatred, and delusion. You know, he's that little devil that sits on our shoulder and whispers in our ear, you know, don't you want it, or don't you hate it, or what do you think's going on here? You know, whatever he whispers, or, he, or she whispers to us. Um, and after the Buddha's enlightenment, I find it very interesting that Mara doesn't disappear. He still shows up, he still comes around periodically to bug the Buddha. <laughs> And, and uh, he appears to various other of the Buddha's disciples also. But what they always say to Mara is, I see you. I see you, Mara. So it's, it's not that Mara has been crushed or destroyed or banished, but just the, the, the gig is up, you know, the game is up. You know, the, the, we've seen through what's going on. We know what the mind is doing, so we're not fooled by it. And that just, that changes everything. That opens up all sorts of possibilities. All sorts of, there's all sorts of freedom in that space of seeing what the mind is actually doing. So it's, it's, it's not that, you know, a, as householders living in the world, what you say is exactly true. You know, we live in the realm of, of, of sense pleasure and sense desire and, and sense aversion. And this is the realm that we live in as lay people. And that doesn't have to be a problem. It's, it's when we don't see the greed, hatred, and, diver- and aversion, the greed, hatred, and delusion, that's when we have a problem. So um, we can actually get to a point in our practice where we see you know, some real craving coming into the mind as we're walking through the mall, or a real aversion, depending on what our kids are doing as we're walking through the mall. Um, but we see it, and we can go, yay, you know, I caught that one. <laughs> you know, that one didn't slip under the radar. I'm with it. I know what's going on. So it's, uh, freedom doesn't always look like what we think it's going to. Mm-hmm. Well, we have the freedom to know clearly. That's what we're learning here. I just want to say something in a minute. Yeah. Victor, just with what you said about, oh, you either like it or you don't like it. Couldn't there be moments when you say, well, this would be wise to get and this would not be wise to get? Well, yeah. So you might like what's wise, right? So your motivation to get something. Yeah, you might get it, there might be a little wanting, but there could be a lot of wisdom around it too. You're choosing it for the right reasons, to nourish the children, to be okay with your budget, you know, a lot of discernment. So a lot of good qualities could be in there too. It's not all just about wanting. It could be about compassion and care. Those can be motivating factors. Victor? Yeah. yeah. I was sort of, what, what you had just um, spoke about, was sort of what I was going to ask is that um, if craving or aversion are arising, and you can see that they're arising in relationship to you know, a specific thought or object or something that isn't, it's not so much then about whether or not that object is taken or whether you get a cup of ice cream, it's whether or not you're aware of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. So he's saying that it's not the object itself that's causing the so-called dukkha or suffering. It's the relationship in the mind to that object. Right. So you answered your own question <laughs> in a way. <laughs> yeah. Response. Did anybody want to add to that, Mark? Well, one of the 
one of the interesting things to investigate is even though it doesn't, um, the, it isn't about the object, it's about the craving or the defilement in the mind, the object is a very useful uh, mechanism to see what the mind's relationship to craving is. Because we can say, oh, it's not about the object, it's about the craving, so that means it's okay to have the object if I crave it, yeah. or okay to get rid of the object because I understand that there's a version there, so I can go ahead and get rid of the object. But what we're, what we're experimenting with is, is a way to be with the craving without the gratification, or to be with the aversion without acting it out. And so sometimes we have to experiment with refraining from having what's pleasant. Not that there's anything necessarily wrong with having the pleasant object, which is kind of your point. There isn't anything necessarily wrong with that pleasant object, especially if it's not harming anybody, that, the fact that you're going to consume it. But we won't really know. We have to experiment. We won't really know whether the mind has clearly seen the craving and is liberated from the craving. I mean, it's not identified with the craving. It's not taking, it's not dependent on the craving until, unless we experiment sometimes with not following through with craving. So when you know, like when you're okay not having it, even though it's, it would be pleasant, then it's okay to have it. But how do you know you're okay not having it? Unless some of the time you experiment with not having it. So it's really important to be playful too around these things, not to have the sort of be tight about, oh, I can't eat afternoon and I shouldn't do this. We were talking at our evening meal about uh, vegetarianism a little bit today. And for a while back, I was almost 20 years, a pretty strict vegetarian. And, uh, but I noticed at some point that there was a lot of attachment around that identity, you know, really holding to it, that didn't seem skillful. I like the fact, it feels good in my heart to, you know, to whatever degree, reducing suffering by eating, not eating meat or eating less meat. But the identity, the, the attachment didn't seem skillful. So, you know, all these things, we can sort of on the surface look good because we're refraining from doing something or we could be indulging in something. But what we really, we have to dig a little deeper to see what is the mind's relationship to the greed, anger, and delusion. Does it understand it? Is it liberated, not identified with these forces of greed, anger, and delusion, or still caught by them? Well, what we know is that there's this experience, and as we 
you know, create a mind that's more steady and more clear, then some things begin to stand out about this experience, like that objects keep coming and going, body-based objects, mind-based objects. They just keep coming and going. So it becomes pretty clear for all of us, I think, to see this activity, this movement, or this coming and going of objects of experience. And then with more steadiness and with some good instructions from the Buddha and other uh, wise teachers, friends, we begin to uh, sense indirectly that they're being known, right? Because in a way, the knowing, we know the knowing because object, an object is being known. So even though we talk about it as two things, it's really just this. And as we better and better understand what this is, we find it really skillful to use that frame, an object being known, because as we use that frame, object being known, object being known, or the heart and the activity of the heart, it doesn't allow for wrong view. It sort of uh, immunizes the mind from wrong view, inserting a sense of self. Because now we have a way, a very effective way, a way that really aligns with our experience of understanding what's happening. There's an object being known. And we don't need a self in that equation to explain what's happening. It's just an object being known, an object being known. And if I don't like it, that is a feeling being known. It's an object being known. Or if I think that whole idea is silly, that's also a thought being known. So that it's a skillful means. You know, all these teachings are not meant to be metaphysical truths that the Buddha is saying, this is what the mind is. It's more that when you understand the mind in this way, you will notice the release of dukkha. The mind will become free or freer when you understand it this way. So to think of it really pragmatically, instead of that we're telling you what the mind is, it's more like uh, Kamala mentioned this very well-known phrase from the Buddhist teachings, ehipasiko, come and see, come and check it out. Check it out practice uh, understanding your experience as in every moment as an object being known. Oh, this is being known. It's like this now. And notice the effect. What is the effect on your heart, on your well-being, when you understand, you train your mind to understand experience in that way? What happens? As opposed to the way we've been conditioned to understand our experience. This is happening to me and I don't like it, or this is happening to me and I like it, so I'm going to do this. That's the ordinary way that we've been conditioned, and then we get the ordinary life that we've been living. And then when we take up these, this training from the Buddhist teachings to understand things in a more simple, direct way as an object being known, then we notice what effect that has on the mind stream. I notice when I do the noting that I think all of you have 
noting what's being known. Um, eventually, I come to a realization that I'm, I don't actually know. That the noting is just part of what I'm trying to know. Like I had this experience this morning where I was being bitten by a mosquito and I decided to just wait for it to be over, like uh, not react to it. And I was noting it, oh, it's, it's with words. And it didn't quite feel right. It didn't feel like it was working. Um, and I realized that I just, the words were just part of like irritation and expectation of getting some sort of reward after the unpleasant thing was done. And also, uh, like, anticipation of it being over soon. Um, and I didn't realize that until um, I sort of let go of doing the noting. You know, like, this doesn't quite feel right. And stepping back from that. And then I noticed that all of this layering is happening. Mm -hmm. So just reflecting that there seems to be a lot of power in the experience of just sitting. And that other times when I try and do it, like um, I have a lot of expectation and a lot of desire to make something happen. Mm -hmm. Just maybe a reflection mm -hmm. on just sitting. Okay. Dance, were you following that? Okay. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that uh, I, I think that the noting can be really useful. I sometimes think about it in this sense that it's kind of like uh, it's like a, looking through a camera, and it can put a frame around the experience. And sometimes the note is like not only putting a frame around the experience to sharpen perception, but it can there also can be a focusing quality that happens in the mind. You know, where the, whatever is being known comes more fully into view with the note and it can be helpful in that sense and can help clarify. Um, in, when I was listening to you it sounded as though <coughs> you were noticing there was a particular tone to the note and that there was perhaps an agenda behind using this particular technique and the attitude of the mind was one of okay I'm going to adopt the noting but it was coming from a place of aversion wanting this to stop and perhaps by continually using the note or noting it again and again it might perhaps you know, uh, eliminate or get rid of the, the itchiness or the sensation, whatever was arising. And, and that being said, I think that there are times in practice where, I, I, you know, I've found that I may be using the noting, but it's not necessary, so to speak, that the mind is actually already accomplishing that function that I typically use it for. And when that's seen, there can just be a settling back and trusting that there's enough clarity already present with the awareness that things can just continue on without the technique. And it can also allow us to become a little bit, at times, more intimate with the experience as well. So we can even notice that, you know, if the noting seems to be kind of actually, um, you know, creating, I guess you could say, uh, um, kind of a lack of closeness with the experience. Yeah, if that makes sense.
Mm. <laughs> right. And so it's kind of like it, what I'm hearing is that, and this is why I always suggest the light note, you know, <laughs> like, like the very, very light note. And, you know, so when that attitude of aversion is present, it's almost like we're cranking up the volume on the note, right, to drown out whatever is underneath the note, so to speak. And so you just notice that. And I think in that situation, I would just tend to the, the quality of, you know, the, the irritation or the aversion. That seems to be what's predominant in that particular experience. So less about the itchiness, you know, but just see that really overwhelming uh, resisting of what's actually happening, the identification with that particular sensation. Yeah. Thank you, Vance. So we've had, we've had a lot of discussion here, and it's been really good that you've been asking these questions, and it helps everybody else. So let's take a few minutes of just settling down and being quiet now, letting all the words dissolve. Time for some walking. <laughs> 